Those big words. Chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Akaliah, in the month of Tuesday, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, "Those who survived the exile are back in the province." are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. Thank you. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. And Lord, we thank you for Nehemiah, who all these many thousands of years ago chose to serve you. And as we consider him this evening, would you change us and conform us to your likeness? Would we learn how to pray afresh? Would we learn how to to weep with you for the glory of your kingdom? Amen. Amen. Wonderful. So we're beginning um, this series in Nehemiah, which is going to track us through to um, to the summertime. And the first thing that I wanted to say is that the Old Testament is so, so good. And often when I speak to people, they sort of say, oh, the Old Testament's a bit tricky, especially when you land in Leviticus and you skip over that in the Bible in one year. Um, But this is a glorious book, as is all of scripture. And as with everything in the Old Testament, the trajectory is Jesus. Everything's heading into towards Jesus. And we're going to see um, glimpses of Jesus and some of what he does um, in Nehemiah as we track through. And as well as being just deep and rich, it's also deeply, deeply relevant for today. So two and a half thousand years ago, this book was written. But as we kind of grapple with it, as we stare into the pages of it, we're going to find lessons about leadership and endurance and character. It's all about a building project. 
exactly where we are right now. Um, so much of it is about the dignity of inclusion and the fact that God is looking for partners and he picks up people wherever they are and he says, actually, I'm going to use you for the glory of my name. That's what's going on for Nehemiah. He's a man in Persia, far away from his own land, and God gets hold of him and uses him for kingdom purposes. It's deeply practical, so it's going to speak to injustice and prayer, which we're looking at tonight, and worship. And it's written into a really fast-changing world. The world that Nehemiah inhabits and the job that the Lord calls him to do is a space where all the tectonic plates are moving, the ground's a bit wobbly underneath his feet. And this book shows us how to navigate kingdom values, how to navigate living for God in a fast-changing world where the sands shift a bit. So it's going to be great. I can't wait. Um, But tonight we start at the very beginning and we start in prayer. So we're just going to track the verses through and then I'll bring a bit of application and we'll draw um, some things out of it. So let's jump into verse 1 with the big words. (laughs) The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hananini, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that has survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Okay, so what on earth is going on there? How did we get there? Um, In the absence of PowerPoint, I have Flippy. (laughs) So, here we go, guys. Okay, let's let's understand where we are in Nehemiah. I'm aware this is quite small, but, you know, go with it. Okay, so, the Old Testament. We begin, as we know, in Genesis, with the first of the trees, the tree of uh, creation of knowledge of good and evil. And um, Genesis tracks through sort of Abraham and Jacob and all of that. And then in 2000 BC, we hit Moses. And the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, they all relate to Moses and the Israelites and the coming out of slavery and the giving of the law and the Ten Commands. Um, and then the Israelites come <coughs> into the land, so the books of Joshua and Judges are all about their kind of establishment as a, as a sort of kingdom for themselves, ruled by the judges. Then in about 1000 BC, the Israelites start crying out to the Lord for a king so they can be like the nations around them. Originally, they get King Saul. He turns out to be pretty bad. So God gives them King David. David's kind of the triumphant pinnacle of the kingship of the people of Israel. So that's 1000 BC. And then the next 500 years, well, 400 years, um, we see that the kings, pretty much all of them, get worse and worse and worse. And the land of Israel becomes a land where injustice is rife and where sort of apostasy is rife. And they're the two things that the Lord has said, actually, you mustn't do. God has said, don't worship other gods and be a place of justice. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. And so one or two kings and one or two chronicles and a lot of the prophets uh, track this whole area between about 1000 BC with the first uh, kings and 597. And Israel basically going on this down curve. They're getting worse and worse and worse in the eyes of God. And God sends lots of prophets like Amos and um, Joel to say to them, come on, come back to God, come back to his ways, come back to justice. But they don't do that. So in 597, the Babylonians 
invade Israel and they carry the ruling elite off into exile. So when we talk about the exile, we need to know that actually some people, some Israelites were left in the land. What happens is the Babylonians just take those who are so the king, aristocracy, lots of money are educated, and they take them and they put them to work in Babylon. But they absolutely, absolutely sack Jerusalem. They sack the land of Israel. So the temples burnt down, the walls are crushed, the, the cities in um, dis disarray. And then into the exilic situation, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel speak, and they speak these words of hope, and they say, it's going to be okay. God is going to rescue you out of this disaster. God is going to pull you back from Israel, from exile, sorry, into Israel. And then in 539, the Babylonian emperor has changed, and it's a guy called Cyrus, and he says to some of the ruling Israelites, you can return to the land. So in 539, we see the return from exile to the land of Israel. But of course they arrive in a land that is in disarray, and deeply impoverished, and where the city is uh, burnt down and in ruins. And so four, four, five, the Lord calls Nehemiah. And before he called Nehemiah, he called Ezra just a few uh, years before. So this was originally one book, Ezra, Nehemiah. And Ezra goes about... Um, endorsing the kind of word of God and calling the Israelites back to the word and rebuilding the temple. And then Nehemiah is called to sort out the civic situation. He is called to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, starting with the walls. So it's 445, where we are, and it's a building project. That's all pointing to Jesus ultimately and a new creation. So this is where we are. Wonderful. Um, so this guy, Nehemiah, who was he? The thing we've got to know about Nehemiah is that he is called out of obscurity for God's purposes. Actually, we find him in the kingdom of Persia, an exile, but an exile who's never known the land of Israel. He's done pretty well for himself in the land of Persia. The fact that he was a cupbearer for the king is basically like a senior civil servant. Um, and he's living in quite a sort of palatial state and then his brothers turn up. It's unclear whether they're his kind of literal brothers or just a sort of brotherhood of the Israelites. And they say, actually, this land that you're from is in disarray. But he's never known this land. He was born in exile. He's never seen it. And what does he do? He allows the Lord to break his heart for the state of Israel. And he moves in courage and self-sacrifice. And he says, you know what? I'm going to boldly go to the king. This is what this prayer is about. It's about... Um, Nehemiah saying to the Lord, Lord, give me courage and give me favour in the sight of the king. Because actually, he could have gone to the king, the king could have just said, not having any of it, or the king could even have said, how dare you come with this request? And basically said, you know, I'm going to execute you or whatever. So it's full of courage and it's full of self-sacrifice because he will take a journey to a land that he's never known and set about upon a building project that is going to be tough and is going to be contested. We'll see that as we go through the weeks. So he's a man of courage and a man of self-sacrifice. But what does he do when he first hears the state of play? That Israel's walls have been broken down and the city is in disarray. Well, rather than doing what I think I would do and get you know, flippy out and start drawing like a strategy diagram and things like that, what does he do? 
He prays, in fact, he prays one of the most incredibly deep prayers in all the scripture. So verse four, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I sat down and wept. And before any action, he weeps. And that is one of the most challenging things in scripture that I've read for a while. Because all of our culture says, you know, weeping is kind of a sign of weakness and things. Weeping is not weakness. The Lord would stir us with tears, would break our hearts for the things that break his. The place of weeping would be a place of strength. And what's going on with Nehemiah here is a precursor to Jesus. It's all about this Jesus trajectory. Because in Luke 19, 41, Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps at the state of his city. And all those hundreds of years before, Nehemiah is found weeping over the state of Israel. And if we got no further in this sermon tonight, that would be good enough just for us to sit and think, actually, how is our weeping? How is our weeping? What are we really letting the Lord break our hearts with? I remember... um, I was quite young, I think I was only about 10, when um, something called the Toronto Blessing, or the Father's Blessing, it had many different names, kind of broke out in the churches. Um, and it was a real kind of renewal, um, Holy Spirit, power all over the place, lots of people falling over, um, sort of mid-90s um, going on. Um, but the thing that struck me the most, my dad went over to Toronto a couple of times, and then he came back and he said the thing that struck him was that you got there and... You know, you arrive sort of hungry for this kind of manifest encounter with the Lord, and and that happened. But the first thing you noticed was the weeping, the weeping. And every night when the meetings were going on, there were just hundreds of intercessors in the kind of undercroft of this um, airport vineyard church in Toronto. And they were just weeping and interceding and contending for the world. There is a place for weeping when we look at the state of the world and we're called to contend, as Nehemiah did, for his city, for his nation. Then it goes on. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Mourning and fasting and praying. So the encouragement to fast actually just to take some time out sometimes to withdraw from the things that so easily satisfy us. Food's a big one, but, you know, in this day and age, social media, TV, Netflix, um, just to take some time out and say, I'm going I'm to fast that thing and I'm going to give that time to the Lord. I'm going to listen to him in prayer. Lament, lament. The space to say, you know what, it is not okay. The space to feel and lament. There's a whole book in scripture in the Old Testament called Lamentations. There is a space to lament, to not run away from the sorrow, but to feel the sorrow and allow it to stir us to prayer and to action. The simple practice of prayer. You know, scripture bleeds prayer. You cannot find a book in the Bible that doesn't speak of prayer because the Lord Almighty has chosen to use each and every one of us just like he's used Nehemiah. He's after partners, as John Mark Homer says. Um, 
And that comes through prayer, through an eternal conversation with the Lord. And it's a conversation that changes things. Prayer changes everything. Um, I love what Karl Barth says. Karl Barth's um, a German theologian. He's now in glory. And he says this, to clasp our hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Or as John Wesley used to say, by praying we enact a social holiness. Nehemiah knew this, that when he prayed, things changed. And so if we're going to ask how our weeping is, we also want to ask this evening, do we believe that prayer changes things? Do we believe that when we do what we just did and we pray for the work of IJM, that, that that's changing something? Because that's what scripture tells us and that's what experience tells us. And then we move on to Nehemiah's prayer. And this is no kind of quick... Lord, make it okay. Make sure the king doesn't chop my head off. You know, this, this is deep and heartfelt and well thought out. And it's a brilliant model for prayer because it just starts with who God is, then confession, then what God's done, and then a request. So who God is. Verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Who God is, the great and awesome God. Prayer always starts with worship. It starts with this and stuff over here. Where we say, okay, Lord, this is who you are. And it realigns everything as we're here and he's there. And we're in deep relationship, knowing that he's the Lord Almighty. It starts with worship. And then Nehemiah moves on to confession, verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. It's back to the injustice and the idolatry stuff. You say, okay God, you gave us this law back here, you gave us the Ten Commandments, and we know that this exile thing has happened because we have ignored this, and we are sorry. And there's a place for confession in prayer, that after we've worshipped the Lord, after we've said to him, this is who you are, we come in confession and repentance. That's why when we gather together to take communion, we always confess, we always say, okay, Lord, Here's my stuff. I'm sorry for where I got it wrong. I give it to you and I receive the grace and love that's found in Jesus Christ. Again, puts God in its rightful place, his rightful place. And it puts us in a place of freedom. So worship, confession. But then he doesn't stay in that place of confession. He knows that it is done. And as we confess things to the Lord, he is faithful and just. And he releases us from all wrongdoing. For us, it's through Jesus. In fact, for Nehemiah, it's through Jesus. But Jesus was still to come. But that's another discussion. And um, he moves on to just say to the Lord, look, Lord, this is what you've done. I know who you are. I know you're all powerful. So 
come and help me out, basically. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. So he recognizes what's happened, why the exiles happened. But then he says, but Lord, you said, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He's saying, okay, God, you promised you'd sort this out. I'm going to take you at your word. Come, do what you said. And again, that is appropriate in prayer, guys. If we ever read the Psalms and David and Co. just rending the heavens saying, come on, God, do it again, do it again. God is secure. And so it is right in prayer to quote scripture back to him. It is right in prayer to say to him, hey, you did this in my life back then. And I, and I felt this promise. And I'm just sure you were saying this. What's going on? It's an eternal conversation. He's looking for partners. And so we worship him. We confess our sins. And we know that he is God, the Lord Almighty. But he is secure enough. And he wants us to have that conversation with him and say, in our time, in our day, renew those deeds. Lord, I remind you who you are, what you said over your world what you said over my life come on, come on and then after all of that Nehemiah offers his specific request to the Lord verse 11 Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man We worship, we confess, we remind the Lord, have a conversation with him, and then we say, okay, God, come on, this is what I need. Um, I love what C.H. Spurgeon um, used to say. He was a, a 19th century Baptist father, and he says this, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. Whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. And it might feel a bit weird to come before the Lord Almighty and say, hey God, come on. But it's right there in scripture. Asking is the rule of the kingdom. So where does that leave us right now? Well guys, um, we're in a building project and we've got some walls to literally rebuild. Um, it's a bit of church. Um, <laughs> And it's so dusty, isn't it? It's just like, what is it? What are we here? And because the Lord has called us to rebuild the walls. But you know what? It's not primarily a physical thing, is it? It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's something that needs to be done in and through and under prayer for the glory of God's name. You know, the psalmist, unless the Lord builds a house for labourers, labour in vain. Actually, we're doing this living space thing, we're doing this building project through prayer. Because we're doing all of it. Because we long to see people come to faith, don't we? We long to see people move from darkness to light. We long to see justice roll like a mighty river. We long to see lives change. But that happens on our knees. And I just, I look at the state of the world right now. 
even just the city of London, even our neighbourhood, and, and it feels chaotic, doesn't it, at every level, at kind of a moral level, social, political, economic, it's like all the tectonic plates are moving. But the more that I listen to preachers from around the world, whether it's um, the guys at Bridgetown Church, or, or Pete Hughes was speaking about this um, up at KXC, a new wine thing, everyone's saying the same thing. They're saying, you know what, it feels a bit bonkers at the moment, a bit like everything's shaking. But the Lord's in it. And maybe the Lord's just letting everything shake and everything rumble because he's about to move. But that happens when we get on our knees. And maybe, just maybe, he's bringing us to the end of ourselves so that actually we'll get on our knees and say, Lord, in our day, in our time, do it again. Do it again. We long to see renewal. We long to see revival. We long to see people flooding into the churches. You know, the last time that we had a revival in this nation was in the 1940s, and that was in the Hebrides, so that's a Scottish island. And it was amazing what happened, but it was still quite far away from London. Um, but it started by two old ladies who were housebound, Peggy and Christine Smith, and they just started to pray. And no one was going to church, and they just started to rend the heavens and say, Lord, do something. And this revival just kicked in as this preacher called Duncan Campbell came along. And it was marked by deep confession and deep repentance and healing. In the 1920s, um, there was a Welsh revival, and it started with this guy called Reese Howes. If you want to be really challenged, read this book. You will just do nothing but pray forever. Um, and Reese Howes, again, he was, just, he was just a minor. A literal, not a minor, as in a young person, a minor, as in coal, a coal miner. Um, and he was a minor, and, and that's what he did for a living. And then he just got caught up in the things of God, and he started to pray. And there was an extraordinary revival which swept Wales and changed the face of that country for a while. That's the 1920s. And the Hebridean revival was the 1940s. And now we're in the almost 2020s. And I just find myself saying, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Come on, in our day, in our time. Renew it. But it's going to start with us. It started with Nehemiah and this individual prayer, this man who said, okay, Lord, I will weep for the state of your nation. And I will pray. And I will be buckled and I will go wherever you want me to go. And that's what he's calling us into. To pray. And to weep. And to say, okay, Lord, break our hearts with the things that break yours. And to believe big, big kingdom dreams. And to say, Lord, we've heard of your faith. You brought revival and renewal to this land in the 18th century through John Wesley. You did it through Peggy and Christine in the 1940s. You did it through Rufus Howells in the 1920s. You're the God of the whole universe. We know you can change this nation and bring it back to you. We know that you can change our locality. You can change Parsons Creek. And we're offering this church to you because it's your church. Humbly approaching. So I think the challenge this evening is all about our own individual personal prayer life. Because it's our personal prayer lives 
which will bring about our corporate prayer life. So what we're going to do is just take a moment to respond and to stand and to say whatever you need to say before the Lord. It's probably going to be a bit of confession, probably going to be a bit of worship. It's probably going to be a bit of, okay, Lord, just break my heart. Let me see things how you see them. Hopefully there's going to be a lot of hunger there. I'm like, come on, Lord, come on. It's all right in and under him. So can I invite you to stand? Let's pray. And there's physical space here this evening, so if you just need to step out and get a bit of space, then please feel free to do that. And where you are, just just lift your heart, lift your voices to the Lord. Just just pray, and we'll see where He wants to take us. Mm-hmm.